We'll continue in uh, Micah chapter 4, verse uh, 5. I'm not going to read anything uh, this morning. Uh, my hope is to get through the end of chapter 5, and uh, uh, I'd like to uh, speed things up by not reading. But Micah has an assertion in chapter 4 uh, and verse 5, and he asserts that the nations follow their own follow their own gods, but he says, as for us, uh, we will uh, follow the Lord, uh, Micah 4, verse 5. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God uh, forever and ever in the, in the name of Yahweh Elohim. So there's a great contrast. All the peoples, the nations, have their own gods. You remember Acts 16, those Athenians had all sorts of idols and gods. And we already talked in verse 2 about walking. Uh, it's to follow a course or a pattern of life. And every day they walk in the way of idolatry and not in the way uh, of Yahweh. But uh, Micah's contrast is we will walk. The true people of God will uh, walk in the name of our God. Our steps will have the, the purpose of pleasing God and walking in his law and in his teaching. And then he says forever and ever. And that is uh, interesting because the Old Testament saints knew a little bit about forever, didn't they? They didn't know as much as we do. They didn't know about heaven. Heaven is never mentioned in the, in the Old Testament. But uh, they, they knew something about it. But to walk with God, they were told that, first of all, it needed to pass from generation to generation. The Israelites were, were told to, to tell your children all the precepts, to tell them all the deeds of God, to tell them from one generation to the other everything that, that God had did. In a, sense, in a sense, each Israelite child was to uh, take their first steps le learning about Yahweh, learning all the things that, that, that Yahweh did. Uh, teach God's law and tell of the great things uh, that God has done. But not only from generation to generation, but also eschatologically. That there was always an eternal hope, David says in Psalm 23, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Uh, what do I have in my life? Well, goodness follows me over here and, and mercy follows me over there. And I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He, he knew there was that hope. Psalm 16 and verse 11, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Where did they get the idea? It's going to last forever. But they saw into this expansive teaching that there was eternal life. In the New Testament, 17 times in John, clear teaching about uh, eternal life. Eternal fire in uh, Matthew 18 and verse 8. And the New Testament then begins to separate the two. There's uh, eternal fire to go to, but there's also uh, eternal glory. Uh, the letters of Paul describe the goal in, in, in different ways. It's really interesting how he uses the words. Our uh, temporary or momentary light affliction uh, works an eternal weight of glory, he says. He says, we will from the Spirit reap eternal life in Galatians 6.5. 
Whatever you sow, you reap. But if you, if you sow to the good and you believe in Christ, you reap eternal life. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 16, he calls it eternal comfort and good. That's where we're headed. That's where Micah, more vaguely than us, said they were headed. And then in uh, Titus 3, 7, he says we're heirs according to the hope of eternal life. My dad is going to turn 96. Someday I may hear the reading of his will. And as an heir, as his firstborn son, maybe they'll say, well, you get this or you get that, or you have dad's clothes. But Paul tells us an encouraging thing, that we are heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You cannot anticipate the reading of a will that has anything greater than that. My father could never say, I'm going to give you eternal life. He might leave me, a, well, he doesn't drive anymore. He could leave me a car or a house or lands or, or some money. But, but we have the, we're heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's a, it's a, a many faceted gem of hope and comfort. You realize we're only scratching the surface of the verses that talk about it. Peter calls it eternal glory and that uh, we will inherit an eternal kingdom. And, and Micah and our view should be this, that I go out of the world walking with God and I immediately go into another world that where I'll still walk with God. I'll be with God. I'll be with all the saints. Micah says, we will walk uh, with God. And then verse six, is, verse 6 through 8 talks about a multi-level restoration uh, of the people in a different way. In that day, there's another future day planned by the Lord, declares Yahweh. This is what God is going to do. And it's God's aid to the helpless. He says, I'm going to bring in the lame and afflicted and, and those who have been driven away. Can, can you imagine that? They, they can't even get there by themselves. Uh, how is God going to do it? How do you get a lame person or an afflicted person out of exile uh, uh, back? Well, I would suggest to you that, that uh, it's wrapped up in the gospel of Christ. You remember when uh, John the Baptist was put in jail. What a, what a shocking thing. What a shocking thing to have a ministry, to have all of Jerusalem and Judea, it says, coming out to you and you're preaching to them and baptizing them. And one day a group of soldiers comes out and says, where's John the Baptist? You're under arrest. And later that day, you're thrown in prison. I've often wondered what the people standing there thought was going on. It's possible that hundreds of people were left there by the river as John was taken away, saying, what happened? What's going on? And in, in John's despair and doubt, he asks, are you the one or we should look for another? And Jesus did many miracles and things in, the, in that next hour. And he said, go tell John, this is what you saw. Deaf people, afflicted people, and also other people have the good news preached them. That's what it's all about. The healing says, listen to the message. Your eyes opening, your, your deaf ears opening says, listen to the message. And, and that was the encouragement. That was the encouragement. These people have no power to control armies, nations, and any of their circumstances. 
but God does. Just the fact, just the fact that the people came back was God's providence. Remember the beginning of Nehemiah. What, what did the ruler see in Nehemiah that started the whole thing? All right. He says, you look sad. Here's the king with his servant. He's a cupbearer or something. He says, you look sad. And that's how Israel gets back to Jerusalem. How can I be happy when the walls are torn down and my whole country is this and that and this? And that starts God's providence to get the people back. It's amazing. And th but that's the power of God. People that have no power on themselves to change circumstances. And the way it begins is a person is said in the presence of a ruler and the ruler says, I'm going to get it done. And I'm going to send you with whatever you need, protection, safety, rules, laws, goods, whatever you need. And it, and it starts to get built back up. Ezekiel eleven seventeen. there's a promise to gather. Ezekiel 34, 16. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat of the strong I will destroy. I will uh, feed them in justice. God says, I'm going to take care of those who can't help themselves. In Ezekiel 34, it's against the false prophets who led the people astray. In Zephaniah 3.19, it says, Behold, at that time I will... Deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And God's reign and Jesus' reign uh, is said to be eternal as well. And so Micah's hope and our hope is because the rule and the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ was always going to be an eternal reign. Isaiah chapter 9, you're familiar, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. It talks about Zebulun and Naphtali and the, and the preaching of the, the gospel. But in verse 7, it says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David, his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. It was always an eternal kingdom. Uh, Daniel uh, chapter 7 verse 13 and 14, uh, the son of man's dominion. Daniel says, I saw the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. It's Revelation 5 all over again, isn't it? His dominion is an everlasting dominion, dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And God brings the captivity captives back not only to uh, not only to um, uh, Israel, but he he brings them back in, in the call of the gospel. Ma Mary is sitting there in her house, and she's told by the by the angel, "He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High," just like. Just like Daniel, the son of man and the ancient of days spoke to him. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary just says, what, what is going on? 
And then in, in verse 9 comes God putting the pieces uh, back together. Uh, it begins a, a number of pictures uh, about uh, daughters uh, and women, and uh, that's used all the way through uh, chapter, chapter 5. Uh, when God brings people back, he drives away people, and then uh, verse 8, You, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter uh, of Jerusalem, the, the, the ones that were driven out. Uh, you're, you're familiar with the picture of a tower as a, as a place of, of safety. So he's saying even the, even the daughters of Jerusalem, right? Not the, not the mighty men, not all the soldiers, uh, because the, uh, the women often are pictured uh, as helpless in the, uh, in the exiles. Uh, the one verse says uh, one, one woman is going to ask, or seven women are going to ask one man, uh, would you uh, be our husband? So it sets up that picture uh, of war and restoration. And then in uh, verse 9, uh, there's wailing like birth pains. And he says, don't you have a king? Don't you have a counselor? Uh, the woman in labor picture, the daughter of Zion comes back up. The exile comes back up. The picture of nations coming and, and pillaging. And they just want to look on the defeated uh, nation. The nations don't know God's thoughts or plans, but God's uh, gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor and then tells the, the daughter of Zion... You're going to overcome them. And uh, we have to think about this because uh, physically it never happened. A number of the commentators say, well, in the, in the age of the Maccabees, the Jews kind of had a, a, a little time when they fought against their enemies. But that, it, that doesn't completely square with Daniel because Daniel says... This nation came and that nation came and the Greeks came and the Romans came and, and then the, the little stone knocked the whole thing down. So it, it's not a complete reign, uh, but the vast majority of commentators say, no, uh, this is a, a, a spiritual threshing of God's enemies. It's, it's going against them. You remember the passage we looked at last week where, the, where they're judged. God, God's laws go out and nations are judged. And we looked at Acts 17, and he's there and he's saying, you're religious, but you're ignorant of the true God. That's making an assessment. That's making a judgment against who somebody is. And then he says, I'll declare to you what you worship in ignorance. This is what I declare. He says, God's the creator. He says, he can't be served with hands. All these idols are false. And he says, he made from one man every nation. And not only that, he said all the boundaries of every nation in the world. And he said a day when all the nations are going to end and he's going to judge the world by Christ. And he says, therefore, what your responsibility is, everybody, all men everywhere should repent. That's, the, that's what he says. So spiritually, spiritually, the nations are overcome once again by the preaching of Jesus and the apostles. Uh, there's always a ray of hope with, with Yahweh. There always is. You could say, well, this country, what, our nation, it's going down so fast, but there's always a ray of hope. There's always a remnant. There's always a shepherd king. There's always a leader. There's always God's plan for redemption of a people. So we come to chapter 5, 
And we had a message on Christmas Day about this chapter, so we're just going to start to skim in the beginning. Uh, I don't know, I have seven or eight little uh, points. So first is the continuation of the female uh, picture. Uh, the daughter of troops is there. And the, there's battle imagery that, that brackets the prophecy about Bethlehem in verse 1 and verse 5. So the battle Im imagery is there. This whole threat, verse 5, is the Assyrian comes into our land, and in the middle is the prophecy about Bethlehem. Notice in verse 1, the closeness of the conflict. There's a siege, right? This isn't two armies lined up in battle against each other. This is one army that's not letting another army or a whole city or a whole people go anywhere. Wait them out, starve them out until the last one. You remember, uh, they were talking about eating each other's children and, and eating dung and things like that. There's no food left. That's the siege. That's how close it is. And it says to strike the king on the cheek. That's pretty close. But right out of nowhere comes the messianic prophecy. The birthplace and ministry of the Messiah comes right out of this uh, cauldron of, of uh, battle. First, Bethlehem. Its size is mentioned. It's small. And we talked about it wasn't even, it wasn't even on the list of Joshua. And I think the number was 163 little towns are mentioned in Joshua. And it actually says this place and all its villages and Bethlehem isn't there one time. It's not even mentioned. But it's the birthplace of the two greatest rulers and leaders in the history of the world, David and Jesus. But it's also a place that doesn't fit with what men think about. It's God's providence in anointing and appointing. First of all comes David. And in God's mercy, here comes Ruth. She's a Moabitess. But now she's the daughter-in-law of an Israelite, and she becomes a, a, a person in David's line. And we, and we looked at that, Boaz and Ruth and this guy and that guy and Obed and Jesse and David. There it is. And God says, I'll take somebody that has no country, has no heritage at all, and I'll marry them to an honest man who says, I'll redeem that person. And that's where my line will come from. And then David's living in Bethlehem. And here comes Samuel. And he says, we're going to consecrate a feast and I'm going, to, I'm going to anoint. They actually asked him, do you come for good or come for bad? They, they still had a bad conscience about what was going on in the nation. And David says, I want to see all your sons. Well, he's not this one, not that one, not this one, not that one. Well, where is he? He's, he, he's out watching the sheep. We'll go get him. You see, the, you see how insignificant? You see what they could have said? David, the youngest, he's always singing and playing his instruments and writing poetry. But here he comes. And the Lord says, that's the one. Well, the same thing happened years later. We talked about that. And if you think about it, where would you be without the words of David? Oh, he's not here. He's out with the sheep. But think, a skilled musician writing poetry, singing songs. And, and, and we have the greatest treasure, right? Spurgeon calls it the treasury of David. 
What a treasure. So here comes Jesus. Here's a woman in her third trimester. Now we got to go on a trip. Well, what happens? Uh, you can't make haste. Right? Every bump, boo, boo. Right? You've got to slow down. So by the time they get there, what happens? Oh, we're all booked up. Sorry, we're all booked up. Sorry, we're all booked up. But in God's providence, what happens? The angels come and tell the shepherds in the city of David, same place. There is born this day, perfect timing, exact day. And what do they say? A savior, which is Christ the Lord. He's the Messiah, but he's also God. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about it in a minute. They say, peace on earth to men are of goodwill. Not peace to all the earth. No, the, the world will never have peace. It, it's peace to those who are, who are the sons and daughters of, uh, of Jesus Christ. And then the coming of the eternal ruler. This is the fifth point. God says it's to me. It's for me. This accomplishes God's purposes. And then there's the giving up and returning. God's people are estranged and exiled, and Jesus and the gospel brings restoration. The seventh point, there's a ministry of power and peace. Notice, he will shepherd in the strength of the Lord. He gets his strength directly from God and also in the, in the majesty of God's name. And, and, and you, we've seen it. In every prophet, God's name is not looked upon the right way. It's not honored the right way. But Jesus Christ comes at the appointed time at a small place that no one would ever guess. The first people that are told to go there are a bunch of shepherds. And that connects to David. And they say, go there. And then they're like, wow, we better go and we better go and tell people about this. And it's one of the most amazing things. But he's going to restore the majesty of God's name that's been missing for all those years. And that's something that we should do also because we should know that the reverence of God's name is something that we should promote because that's the shepherd leader. That's what he's going to do. He's going to secure peace. And there's going to be an expansion to the, to the end of the, of the earth. Uh, and Jesus gives peace and he promises peace. The greatest peace is the peace of salvation. That's at the outset. That's at the core. That's what the angels said. Peace to those people. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Not that I can sit in my living room and relax. Not that my country's not going to have war. I'll have eternal peace because I have peace with God. Amen. That's what his chastisement brought. And with his stripes, we're healed. We're healed internally. We're healed spiritually. We're healed from the torment of our sin. And we can sit and relax in our living room and say, I have peace with God. Colossians 1.20 Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And that is the, that is the eschatological and final goal, isn't it? The cross begins this process, and someday the final person will be saved that's going to be saved. 
and then it's all going to get wrapped up and everything just will be all reconciled, put back together the, the right way. We'll mention it later. Babylon will be destroyed, the beast will be destroyed, the prophet will be destroyed. And Revelation 19, the people recognize that they say, praise the Lord because justice was done and all of God's enemies and all of God's people's enemies are gone. And, and that's what John saw. And that's what he was able to tell. In, in Ephesians uh, 2, 16 and 17, Paul talks about the peace uh, that, it, that it brings completely. Ephesians 2, 16. And he might... And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So he makes peace between Jews and Gentiles. But he came and he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. So it's a great reconciling thing. But the message to Jew and Gentile alike is peace. And the peace is found in the cross. The, the peace is, is important. It's, it starts at the outset of Jesus's ministry. And then we looked at those verses. We don't have time today. But he says, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives. It's the peace that passes all understanding. That, that is the fruit. I have peace with God so I can be a peaceful person. I can try to be at peace with you. That's my, that's my job to be a peacemaker. It's a, it's a beatitude job. Make peace. And it's a blessing. So he is their peace. And then the picture of conflict. The Assyrian, uh, the English, uh, the ESV study Bible says, the Assyrian of Micah's day represents the enemies of God's people in every age. And Barnes relates it to the time after Christ's coming. Uh, the Assyrians are gone. They're wiped out. But, but there's still all those enemies. And you see, we're, we're dealing with symbols. Once again, Daniel's prophecy of nations. Here are all these kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar, you're up here, and then comes here, and here, and here, and here. And what's going to happen? Christ's kingdom comes and knocks the whole thing down and, and takes over everything. Because every other kingdom has what, Paul says? Boundaries and appointments for their habitation. There's only one kingdom that has no boundaries and no end. And that's the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The, the Assyrians will, will come into the land. They'll do all this, uh, all this stuff. Uh, you can look up Isaiah 10 verses 5 through 11. And, and then Isaiah 14 verses 24 to 27. This, the same uh, symbolic pictures are there. And Assyria is, is painted or portrayed as the... Uh, the evil one. They, they come into the land. They tread in their palaces. Uh, Barnes says in Isaiah 2, the Assyrian is the type of Antichrist and Satan. As Christ is our, our peace, so one enemy is chosen to represent all enemies who vex the church. And you could see, you go right into Revelation, don't you? The studies that we're having now in the, in the letters to the seven churches, what is vexing those churches? Persecution, false teaching, idolatry, people drifting off, right? The Jezebel who contradicted what the Acts 15 uh, council said. Oh, don't eat, don't eat things sacrificed to blood and, and, and that's what she led them into or was trying to. 
and Babylon and the beast and the prostitute are all going to be taken care of. And then in verse 5b come the shepherds and the princes of men. It's an interesting picture. Seven shepherds and, and eight princes uh, show up. And, and this is just uh, the number of perfection is seven. And the number eight means you have more than enough. You remember Amos chapter one for three transgressions and for four. Now, when I was growing up, my, my mother used to say, that's it. And when she said, that's it, you knew that was it. There was trouble coming. But that's not the idea. God doesn't say, okay, you've got three transactions, one more, and that's it. No, it means the fourth one means you're, you're ready for judgment. There's too many sins to count. Ecclesiastes 11.2, this is a cast your bread, be a giving person, and, and it'll return to you. Give a portion to seven or even eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. Give generously. Don't just say, here, uh, I only have seven. Give to the other person. That's more than enough, isn't it? Well, here is a number that's more than enough. Uh, the identity of the shepherds, right? It's in our minds. Well, who are they? The Geneva Bible calls the princes principal men, and the New American Standards says uh, leaders. And, and once again, it's a symbolic passage. And, and we always have to remember, symbolic leads to reality. Uh, there's another way of interpreting that says this has to be physically happening. We have to find a time when there's seven shepherds and eight this. We have to find a time when there's a literal thousand years. We have to find a time when there's a real chain and a real pit and the devil is put on the chain. We have to find it. We have to interpret it literally. No, it, it's symbolic, but symbolic always leads to reality. It's the continuation of the Messiah and, and the leader and the shepherd leader passage. It's not just pulled out of some place. It, it has to do with the reign of the Messiah. Uh, notice the continuation of the passage. says, he shall deliver us from Assyria. Well, who's the he? Uh, the, the New American Standard and the New King James capitalize the he. They say it, it's the Messiah. It's the, it's the one who's of ancient days. It's the shepherd leader. He's going to do it. And he's going to have people to do it. And here they're just called shepherds and leaders. But, but who are they? So their identity, I, I believe uh, uh, firmly because I've been helped by others, but I also can see it clearly, is, is messianic age leaders. Uh, think of Ephesians 2. He ascended and gave gifts to men. And who were those men? evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And what do they do? They build up the church. And what's the result? I'm not tossed by any wind and wave of doctrine, am I? And what is the other result? I keep growing up to maturity. And what is the other result? That each one feeds off the other one. I help you, and you help me, and you help me, and I help you. And we all grow together. That's what happens. That, that, that sounds good, doesn't it? Acts chapter 14, verse 23, we studied it in the, the, the Wednesday night meetings. And they appointed elders in every place. That was the idea. Find qualified men to lead the people of God, to lead this new multitude that, that is out there telling people about God's law and judging them by what they say. Titus 
Titus gets left in Crete, right? Oh, thanks a lot, Paul. Thanks for leaving me in Crete. Bunch of evil beasts and lazy gluttons around here all the time. But he tells them, this is why I left you to appoint elders in every city, every town. Find qualified men. Find men that meet the criteria of gospel ministry and make them elders to lead the people. It's the expansion. It's not just seven. Well, now we found seven. Now we got to find eight principal men. No, it's, it's everybody that's appointed to, to serve in the church. It's the age of the Messiah. Uh, Trapp also s says, not only in the Messianic age, but look at the faithful people then. He says, look at Hezekiah. How, how firm was he? How steady was he? Here's a guy standing at his gate. He's got 185,000 troops. They have killed and conquered everything. And the guy says, don't think that Hezekiah could talk you out of this. Don't think that your God could save him. What does Hezekiah do? He goes and prays and he says, God, don't let this happen. And God doesn't let it happen. And the next morning, there's not 185,000 people there anymore. And he wants to live longer. He doesn't want to die. And what does he do? He goes and prays and prays and prays, Lord, have mercy on me. So Trapp says, think about Hezekiah. Think about Haggai and Zechariah. These post-exilic prophets, they, they, God brought his people back, but he, he had men that were leaders. And Ezra and Nehemiah uh, led them. The gospel spreads and the head of the church, uh, Jesus Christ, raises up many faithful men. God works by the power of Christ to, to conquer souls and, and keep the flock together. And then uh, 7 to 9, another remnant passage. We've looked at a number of them before, uh, but we'll focus on what Paul says about the Jews in Romans 9 and 11. In 9.27, he says, the remnant will be saved. He says if God didn't do anything, the people would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. You would have no hope. I would have no hope for my salvation if God didn't preserve me and protect me and keep me. That's what he told Elijah. I've reserved. I have kept. I did it. I kept them. And I'm thankful that I can say God is the only one that can keep me. Because I see things in here that depart from the living God. That don't walk with God. That fight against it. And God says, no, I kept them. In Romans 11.5, he quotes the Elijah passage. And he says, in the same way. Just like then, there is also come to be at this time a remnant according to the election or according to those chosen by grace or according to the election of grace, the New King James says. God says, I've kept for myself. And then he says, where are, where are they going to be? In the midst of many people and among the nations, that's where they're going to be. And 2 Peter and James are letters that show us that that is fulfilled. 2 Peter comes up with a whole list you never even heard before. We've heard of the letter to, we've heard of the letter to the churches of Revelation. Most of us could name almost five or six of them off the top of our head. But where is Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Bithynia? Well, that's where the gospel spreads. James says to, the, to those who are in the dispersion. Where does that mean? They're everywhere. And that's what happened. 
but God's keeping them for himself. And then here's an interesting picture of God's activity. He says it's going to be like dew from heaven that comes down. And it's going to be unstoppable. You can't stop dew. You can't say, I don't want my lawn to be wet tomorrow morning. I don't want to have to squeegee off my car windows because of the dew all over it. God controls the dew. The showers on the grass, which delay not for man. You can't say, hold on, I don't want it to rain. God's going to do it. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations. That's the prophecy. In the midst of my peoples like a lion and beast of the forest. And this is really interesting because it, it uses that. They'll tread down and they'll tear things apart. And you say, well, how can it be like dew? And how can it be like uh, uh, like a lion? Well, the, the answer... The answer is this is, these are the characteristics of the gospel ministry. There's gentleness and, and there's firmness. And, and we'll see it right here. Uh, Barnes connect the, all these characteristics to apostolic preaching. There's tenderness with love or rebuking and uncleanness and rebuking uncleanness and sin. You remember in Thessalonians how Paul says he was with the people as a mother hen. You think, well, that's not a powerful ministry. Yeah, that is a powerful ministry. When you can be the, a lead apostle and treat people like that. But listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians uh, 10, 1 through 6. I myself, I, Paul, myself entreat you by what? The meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face, but bold toward you when I'm away. I beg you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness, and such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So here's this controversy that they have. They said, oh yeah, he's, he's, big, he's a big writer. He's a tough guy at the pen, but when he gets here, he's nothing. But how does he say, I want to come to you humbly, meekly. But then what does he say? He knows his ministry. Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh for weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to do what? Destroy strongholds. Sounds like the work of a lion, right? Everybody's afraid of a lion. Destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We destroy it, he says. You remember we talked about those pictures last week. Here he's talking to Felix and, a, and Agrippa, and the one guy says, you're nuts. You're out of your mind. He says, yeah, I'm out of my mind, but it's for the gospel. But it, you know this is true. And the other guy says, well, what are you trying to do? Make me a Christian? He says, you bet I am. But look at the warfare picture. Destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of Christ. And what do we do with that? And take every thought captive to obey Christ. There's prisoners of war, Paul says. I'm taking prisoners of war. I'm taking people captive because the Spirit is going to work in them. They're going to become servants of Christ. But it's all war image. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Punish disobedience? Well, that's it. Meekness and gentleness of Christ and warfare captives and conquering. 
And and, and verse 9 of uh, uh, chapter 5 shows the eschatological. All your your hand will be lifted up over your adversaries and all your (coughs) enemies will be cut off. Well, cut off is good because in uh, 10 through 15, and we're just going to finish this quickly, uh, cut off is used (coughs) four times and root out is used once. But it's not the enemies. God is saying, I'm going to cut out all your sin. I'm going to cut out all these things that you were doing. The result of the rule of the shepherd will be the separation of them from their sins. He's going to cut off horses. He's going to cut off cities. He's going to cut off sorceries. An interesting passage to read in that regard is Ezekiel 13. (coughs) And he's going to cut off all these carved images. He's going to root out the ash. Asherah and the cities, the, the primary location of all these evils. You, you think of a- Athens. Uh, city people have this swagger about where they are. I faced that when I would do the technical training. And one time I went to New York after we moved to the Boston area. And I said, I'm from the Boston area. And the guy went into this, well, you're going to see right away that uh, things are different down here in New York City. The people are tough, the pace is, you know, this and that, even the coffee is strong. Oh, okay, well, that's great. But see, that's the, that's the pride of the city. I live in New York City. I've lived in the city all my life. Philadelphia had the same thing. Born and raised in Philly, I'm from Philly. But, but the cities are centers of idolatry. Because in Philadelphia and in New York, there's a bar on almost every corner. There's a liquor store every other corner. There's prostitution. There's all sorts of stuff. There's everything there. And and God says, I'm going to cut you off of all these things. So these natural forces and centers of idolatry uh, do not affect you anymore. I'm going to cut them off. Uh, Jesus said we should cut off things too. You understand the symbolism there because everybody has their hands, everybody has their eyes, everybody has their feet. But that's what God's saying. I'm going to just cut this. I'm going to separate you from sin. All right, we're done for today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, write these things on our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.